Now, as we jump into week four of our sermon series, Be a Blessing, um, I've loved this series. Uh, there it is right there. I hope that you have enjoyed walking through the book of Acts. Now, before we jump into tonight, we need to recap because so far we're jumping, we're going chapter by chapter. Now, next week, we're going to jump a little bit forward in Acts. But for the last three weeks, we've gone chapter by chapter. If you'll remember, we began with Acts chapter 1, and we talked about the power of the Holy Spirit when it fills a believer, right? We talked about how when Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, after he was crucified, the Holy Spirit came and now lives inside of believers. That's our power. That is our personal connection to the Lord is the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then week 2, we talked about the early church right, how they were devoted. They devoted themselves collectively and individually to the teaching of the apostles, the breaking of bread, prayer, and to fellowship. And then last week, you'll remember, we saw a miracle happen, right? It's amazing when you read scripture, especially through the lens of those who are walking through it. Peter and John, they approach the lame man, and they tell him, I don't have silver or gold for you, but what I do have in the name of Jesus, I give to you, stand. And not only that, they help him, he stands, he begins walking, and he went from limping to leaping. He went from paralyzed to praising. So we've watched what has unfolded in the book of Acts after Jesus ascends into heaven. And tonight we get to Acts chapter 4. Now this is directly after last week. This is directly after Peter and John have this moment with the lame man. In fact, they're going to face a whole lot of persecution for what has been done in Jesus' name. Now I believe this is a very important sermon for your generation because as we continue forward with Christianity in America, we're going to continue to face more and more persecution. I believe in our country that there will be a time very soon where there are no more undercover Christians. There will be a time where we have to be bold in our faith. And I believe that day has come now where believers must stand up for truth, must stand up for God's word, and must be filled with the Holy Spirit so we know what to say. I think that's the key. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The title for tonight is Be a Rebel. Be a Rebel. How can you be a rebel and be a blessing to somebody else? I want to answer that question with Acts chapter 4. Now, if you will, let's get as excited as we can. Open up with me to that passage, Acts chapter 4, tonight. Amen. Come on. Now, here's what we're going to find. Let me set the scene, and then we're going to read it. So Peter and John have truly lived as rebels. Now, a lot of times, rebel can have negative connotations, right? You can rebel against your parents. You can rebel against the law. Being rebellious is not always a good thing. However... What you see in the book of Acts is that Peter and John and the early disciples, the apostles, very clearly have to make a choice. They do, in fact, live as rebels. But here's the key thing that you have to understand, is that you and me are called to be rebels in the same way. What are we rebels to? I believe that all of us, biblically, are rebels to something. And if you go back to the Garden of Eden, you'll see the choice that Adam and Eve made. They could rebel against the temptation that Satan was offering and follow God, but they didn't choose that, did they? They chose to rebel against God's word, to go against the command that he had given, and they chose to follow Satan's temptation. And so in the book of Acts, what you see very clearly is the early apostles, they have a choice. The early church has a choice. They're either going to be rebels against the world and live for Jesus, who has just ascended, or they're going to give in to fear, they're going to give in to persecution, and they're going to disobey God. So all of us at one point or another in our life, are making a choice as to what we are going to rebel against. Now, what I want to talk to you about is how incredible it is that Peter and John choose, you're going to see it, to not bow down to the cultures of their day. They choose to preach Jesus boldly. They will speak out against sin and idol worship. And the reason you and I, the reason they have to make a choice is because the world and God 
are in conflict with one another. And we see this play out in our lives. The world is fallen, it is broken. There is sin that is occurring all around us, right? Constantly, if you look at our culture, our culture is chasing after sin and idol worship and all these different things. But when you look at God's word, when you look at the Bible, it says very clearly that we're supposed to what? Die to our own name, die to our own gain, die to selfish ambition, and to live for the Lord. So they're in conflict. So ultimately, you and me in 2023 have the same choice that Peter and John had 2,000 years ago. We cannot obey the world and obey God. We cannot obey the culture and obey Christ. Why? Because they're in conflict. You cannot say yes to every person and give God your best yes. Why? Because those are going to be in conflict. People are going to tempt you to do that which is against God's word. See, these things don't go together. So when we say be a rebel, be a rebel for the Lord who goes against sin, who goes against the culture, who goes against temptation, who goes against the world. I wrote this down. I believe this will be on the screen. I do hope that this carries with you this week. I wrote, don't trade in God's long-term plan for Satan's short-term pleasure. Don't trade God's long-term plan for temptation's short-term pleasure. And that's the thing about temptation. It's always, click, it's always quick and it's always filled with pleasure. But the consequences are never quick and the pleasure fades very quickly, doesn't it? The consequences of sin last sometimes a lifetime, it feels like. But the pleasure in the moment lasts very briefly. Don't trade in God's long-term plan for temptation's short-term pleasure. Now, where we land here in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have rebelled against the culture. They've chosen to do a good deed in the name of Jesus. Remember, what they're going to be on trial for, the reason they're arrested, is not because they did something of selfish gain, not because they hurt somebody in Jesus' name. And that's very important. Their religion did not hurt somebody. Their, their faith quite literally brought a man from limping to leaping, right? So they are going to be on trial for what we, in, in God's eyes, would consider a good and righteous deed. And they're going to be in trouble for it. Now, before we, the last thing I'll say before we talk about being a rebel is there is absolutely a wrong way to be a rebel for God. If, if you being a rebel for God involves any hate or discrimination against another person, that is not God's plan. Can I get an amen? That is not what we are talking about. We are talking about living for truth and speaking the truth in love. May we ever sacrifice one. May we ever sacrifice truth. May we ever sacrifice love. We are outside of God's will. If we do either one, but we don't have the other, we find ourselves outside of God's will. Now, read with me. we got 20 verses total for tonight. We're going to start with the first 12. Acts chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. This is directly following the healing of the lame man. It says, while they were speaking to the people, that being Peter and John, the priests, the captain of the temple, police, and the Sadducees confronted them. Verse 2 says, because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. And then verse 4 is very powerful. May we not just read over it and gloss over this. But many of those who heard the message believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. It was 3,000 a few chapters ago. It's 5,000 now. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem. It says in verse 7, after they had Peter and John stand before them, it's an intimidation factor. They have them stand before them, and they begin to question them. And here's their question. By what power or in what name have you done this? 
Verse 8 says, Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, a promise going back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man and by what means he was healed, in other words, if this is what we are on trial for, if this is what has gone wrong, look what he says. Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is, and then he quotes Psalm 118 verse 22 because he's speaking to a Jewish audience. Peter's bold, but he has strategy to his boldness. He says, the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then verse 12 says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which people must be given in order to be saved. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in tonight. Father, we love you. And Lord, we thank you for your word and how it pierces our heart, how it encourages our heart. Lord, we thank you that we get to gather and we allow your word. God, we pray you would allow it to just completely reform our mind and transform our mind. We pray, Lord, that it would shape our heart and shape our actions. Lord, I do pray for all of us in this room that we would walk away with a higher view of Jesus, not anything else but Jesus. And Lord, you know every calling that you have on each person in this room. Lord, I pray for their hearts that they would be obedient, that I would be obedient. And Lord, we pray for anyone in here who doesn't know Jesus in a personal saving way. Lord, we're not talking about religion. We're not talking about church. We're talking about a relationship with you. I pray for anybody in here who doesn't know Jesus personally, that they would be bold enough tonight to repent of their sins and trust in the good news of Jesus to be made new again. And so, Lord, we give you tonight. We ask that we would be right where our feet are. We ask, Lord, that as you are here, that we would be here. Because there is nowhere else we would rather be except in your presence. Lord, we love you. Say, speak every word tonight. And if that's your prayer, would you say amen? Well, once again, thanks for being here tonight. Let's start. Number one, let's talk about the difference between arrogance and boldness. Let's start dissecting chapter four by this, this comparison. Let's talk about the difference between arrogance and boldness. Now, Peter and John, as you're writing this down, each point tonight is going to be the difference between. As you're writing this down, let me remind you, they are on trial for a good deed. And they must give an account to the leaders of that time. Now, here's an amazing cross-reference, right? Last week we made a cross-reference about how Jesus, if you remember this, this is really cool, how Jesus came to Peter when Peter started sinking and lifted him up, right? You remember that moment? And then in Peter's life now, last week, when he heals the lame man, he quite literally helps pick this man up. He doesn't just give him the good news of Jesus. He goes and meets him where he is and helps lift him, right? An amazing cross-reference. Well, here's another one that I love to point out in Acts chapter 4. So the very first thing when Peter, is on, when Peter and John are on stand and they have to give an account, it very clearly says that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is, again, all through Peter's journey in Acts, what you see is, if you cross-reference it to the Gospels, you see constant promises of Jesus come back to life in the book of Acts. And one of them being is that Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12, and I want to show it to you, Luke chapter 12, verse 11 to 12. It says, Jesus said, as he speaks to many people this day, he says, whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, this is a promise. He says, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. Now, 
This is a New Testament promise from Jesus to disciples. If you're a disciple of Jesus, this applies to your life. He says, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. Do you know who was present that day when Jesus said this to many, many people? Peter. Jesus was speaking to the disciples and many others who were listening that day. And Peter was there and Peter was listening to this moment where Jesus says, hey, if you ever stand on trial for me, if you're ever in a moment of intimidation, if you're ever in a moment of fear, like, don't worry. I know every other circumstance in your life should tell you you should worry, but I promise you this Holy Spirit I've been speaking of, this Holy Spirit who's called the helper, will quite literally supernaturally intervene for you and speak on your behalf when you find yourself in that moment. Isn't that an amazing promise? Now, here's the thing, right? And I want to speak candidly with you. Here in America in 2023, we don't really quite understand how cool that is to see that come to life to Peter because most of us in this room have not stood on trial to authorities about Jesus. I'm just speaking honestly. I have not. I have never stood on trial to the authorities for an act that Jesus has done through me. And I'm not sure anybody in this room has. If you have, then praise God. But I do want to make a point to you that if you're a Christian, like if you're a believer and you're a disciple of Christ and you've been following him for a little while, I want to ask you the hard question that I have to ask myself. And that is, have you ever had to, though, defend your faith before? Have you ever had to explain it? Like, all right, you know what? I might not have been on trial to the authorities, but have you ever had your faith persecuted just a little bit? It doesn't have to be major. But like, quite literally, have you had someone laugh in your face or condemn you for following Jesus before? Have you been left out of anything because you're known as a follower of Jesus? Like, have you faced any, any persecution over your faith? And I'm not trying to beat you up if you haven't, but here's what I want to make a point to you. And I wrote this down in my notes as I was studying this text. It'll be on the screen. If our faith is never persecuted at all, we must ask, is our faith bold at all? And I'm serious. I'm not telling you to go out and find persecution tonight. Don't go to Burger King and start trashing the workers in Jesus' name. Don't do that. Burger King's on the come up, too. They rebranded. Now, I'm serious. Like, in your life, if you've been a Jesus follower, especially over a year, over two years, however long you want to put it, have you ever faced persecution because you're a Christian? If not, we do have to ask that question. What kind of faith are we living with? Because maybe we're not standing in front of rulers or authorities. I believe someday in America we'll come to that. But, like, do you ever get left out of things, not because you're annoying or uncool, but literally because of Jesus? Hey, we don't invite that person because they love Jesus, and we don't. Hey, you know what? I stood up for my faith at a time where it was really uncomfortable, and I lost somebody in my life. I wasn't rude to them, but I lost somebody in my life because they know I'm a Jesus follower, and I wasn't going to budge on that. Hey, I've had somebody tell me to my face, no, I don't want to hear you share the gospel with me. And you rejoice because you counted it worthy to be suffered for the name of Jesus if you faced a little bit of rejection. College students, I want to tell you, there is so much more to the Christian life than just showing up, filling a seat, and going home every week here or whatever church you belong to. There's so much more to the Christian life. And you hear that hush? That's each of us desiring a little bit more out of this Christian life. <laughs> because when I look at the book of Acts, when I study through it, when I preach sermons on it, I want to live personally with a faith that's not persecuted every day. Nobody wants that. But man, I want to be counted worthy to suffer some dishonor for Jesus' name. 
Like I'm naturally a shy, introverted person. I have been my whole life. My mom will tell you that tonight. I hate public speaking. And men, like I want to be pushed out of my comfort zone where I can face some kind of, some kind of rejection for Jesus so that I can be counted worthy. Why? Because you see the early church on fire for Jesus. And so I don't want to cut you down if you never have. I don't want to cut myself down if I never have. But I do want you to walk away tonight saying, how bold of a faith do you have? Is it one that speaks up when others are silent? Is it one that loves the ones who nobody else is loving? My old college pastor used to always say, he'd talk about people. I went to Nashville with him for a conference and we roomed together and he would introduce me to people he met at his old church. And every single time he would introduce me to somebody, there was one compliment he would say about them that always stuck with me. He still says it to this day. I talked to him two weeks ago. We met somebody and it was from his old church and we dapped up. I said, what's up, man? Good to meet you. We walked away and this is what he said. He said, I'll tell you what, that guy, he is a friend to the friendless. I said, what do you mean? I said, he walks into a room. He doesn't go to the most popular. He doesn't go to his clique. He doesn't go to his friends. He goes and he finds somebody who nobody else has and he makes a friend out of that person. And he said, that's the picture of Jesus. I'm serious. Do you, does your friend group ever look at you weird because you go talk to people they don't talk to? Goodness, I need to move on or I'm gonna stay here all night. At some point, bold faith will lead to Persecution. To truly live for Jesus, this world has got to reject you. Because before it rejects you and me, it rejected Jesus. We don't make enemies on purpose. I don't need to clarify this. I know you're with me. But bold faith brings rejection. Are we ever stepping out, guys? Are we ever stepping out? Now, one thing I love here is when you look at verse 13, what we didn't read, right after 12, the start of verse 13, it says, of these rulers and elders, look at this, it says, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John, it says they realized they were uneducated and untrained men. They had nothing else going for them except that they had been with Jesus of Nazareth. And their boldness was obvious. Now, what I get asked a lot, and I have over the years as a college pastor, is how do I be bold and confident without being arrogant? And that's a hard line. Like, that's not easy. How do you have confidence without being prideful? How do you truly like live in a way where you're bold but not arrogant? Because nobody wants to be around arrogant people and nobody wants to be around an arrogant Christian. I don't know what is more bad smelling to the world than an arrogant Christian, truly. So we don't want that. So how, how do you live bold? I want to break this down for you. I remember a few years ago I was reading an article and there was a hurricane coming to Miami. I've been to Miami. Me and my wife love that city. There was a hurricane coming to Miami and they had told everybody to evacuate from the city. And I read online about this guy who stayed in Miami, even though everybody else had evacuated, he stayed. And his goal was, it's a true story, you can go find it. His goal was to go to one of the tallest resorts in the city and stay as high up as he can in order to watch the hurricane happen, right? And he goes, he ends up on the 12th or 13th floor. And on this floor, as the hurricane's coming, everybody else is evacuated, there's Florida ceiling glass windows, right? So you can literally see everything. And even though the authorities had told him to evacuate, even though they told him, hey, you need to get out of here. You're, you're not going to survive this. He said, I got this, right? I'm going to do this on my own. And he tells this story where on the 13th floor, second to 12th floor, as he's watching the hurricane get closer, he felt pretty confident and felt pretty good until he started feeling the building sway a little bit. 
I don't know how you are with heights. I don't do well with heights. I would immediately start throwing up. <laughs> and he feels the building start swaying. And he even says, he says in the article, he's like, you know, I was, I was even okay until the next thing happened. And it told the next thing. It said he was standing up to the glass and he was watching the winds go crazy. And right in front of his eyes, he started to see a crack start to form in the glass. And he said he st stepped back and he started realizing he's made a mistake. I think the rest of the story, he goes down to the lobby, he hunkers down, he doesn't stay up there because he realizes what a mistake he makes. And the mistake he made, I've never forgotten because authorities told him that which he should do and he responded to the authorities who knew best and said, I got this. That's arrogance. Arrogance is, I got this. I don't need to listen to my authorities. I'm going to do this on my own. And arrogance ends up in very, very rough places for you. So arrogance is, I got this. Arrogance is, hey, I've been told by my authority, which the highest authority is Jesus. I've been told by God to live a certain way and to follow him and to flee temptation. But arrogance is me saying, hey, I've got this. I'm going to do this my way. I'm going to ignore authorities. And you see Peter and John, you see their confidence on display. But one thing that's not on display is arrogance. Even the unbelieving rulers don't say, man, look at their arrogance. Look at their pride. They say, look at their boldness. Why? Because here's Peter and John's attitude. It's not, I got this. It's, God's got this. Their attitude is not one of self-reliance. Their attitude is one of, I'm reliant on God to get me through this. Before Peter ever spoke a word, he was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Which means before he ever, ever even gave his speech, he's relying on God. And I want to tell you, a lot of times in ministry, a lot of times for Christians, myself included, <laughs> We, we don't really take a God's got this approach. We take a I got this approach. Am I the only one in the room? I don't think so. We take a man, I got this. Right? That means, hey, I'm going to figure this out on my own. And God can come later. Hey, I'm, I'm driven by my own thing. So here practically, let me break this down for you. I'll put it on the screen. Here's some of the factors. The differences, differences between arrogance and boldness comes down to this. A, who are you relying on? A is, who are you relying on? You are Christ. In everything that you venture through, as you venture through school, as you venture through your job, as you venture through ministry, who are you reliant on? Not only that, but B, who are you giving credit to? That's what I love about Peter and John this moment. Every single thing they speak about is Jesus. Every single thing they say, every single credit they're not saying one thing about we raised this man up to walk. They're pointing all the credit right back to Jesus. And that gives them a whole lot of boldness, doesn't it? Because when you're able to know, hey, God told me to do this, God's power was flowing through me, through me on this, I get to have a whole lot of confidence. I tell people all the time when they come up to me after a sermon, they'll say something. I'll say, man, listen, I'm not the best preacher in the world. Not in any way, shape, or form. There's a lot of people who can share the gospel better than me. Adrian Rogers said, there's nobody who can share a better gospel than me, but there's people who can share the gospel better than me. What I do tell people is, I'm not the best preacher in the world, not by a long shot, but I do have the confidence to know that I'm the preacher called to the view at this time. And that gives me a whole lot of peace and a whole lot of clarity because I realize I don't have to be the best of the best. I'm just the one God chose for this time. That's, that's me wrestling with arrogance and confidence. What is it for you? For some of you at your job, you have people there who like really don't know Jesus and have zero interest in it, and they really don't know if you're a Christian or not. Let's be honest. They really don't know. 
you might not be the best person at sharing the gospel ever. Probably not. You and I are probably not the best evangelists that have ever lived. The best evangelists in the city, probably not. But you know what? You're the person that God has put right there for that moment at that time. That's confidence. See, arrogance goes to work and says, man, ain't nobody talk as smooth as me. Ain't nobody a leader like me. I'm going to tell everybody about Jesus and revival is going to break out because I got this. That's arrogance. And man, that will put you in a dark place. Here's confidence. I'm not the best. I'm broken myself. But I know God. I know the one who has done something in my life. He's put me at this job, which means he's the, I'm the one he has placed here to start telling people about Jesus, and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. That's God's got this. And you know what that does? That relieves the pressure because then you can make a mistake because you're not built on yourself anyway. You have what? A firm foundation in Christ. People don't want a perfect gospel presentation either. Anyways, they want something real, and they want something relational. Arrogance is, I got this. Humility is, God's got this. And then the last one, C is, who is getting the glory? Who is getting the glory? And it's a good thing to be called to bold deeds. If you are so fortunate enough in your life to be called by God to do something that is outside of your comfort zone, rejoice. <laughs> Praise him that you get to rejoice, that you get to serve, that you get to do something amazing. Because that means he has placed you in a specific place for a specific task that is going to bring great glory to him and prepare you for that which is next. So I want you to take a moment because I have a question that you're going to answer in a moment. I want you to take a second and I want you to look at this. And I want you to ask yourself this question. In what way is God telling me to be bold in my faith? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to write that answer down. That's not for your neighbor. That's not for me. I'm not taking these up. But what is your answer to this? Because in a room like this, if you know Jesus, for sure, God is telling you to do something bold with your faith. And you know what? It might be praying a bigger prayer than what you have prayed. We have a big God. One of the best ways we can respect God is by bringing big prayers. For some of you, you got a conflict in your life, and you've just been praying for it to go away, but another conflict's going to arise. You don't find peace and freedom when conflicts just go away. You find peace and freedom when God gets involved in your conflict. Maybe it's you saying, hey, you know what? <clears throat> I'm going to let the Lord in on this. I'm going to be bold and ask him, God, I have a financial issue right now. I have a relationship issue right now. I have a sin issue right now. I have a job issue right now. I have a pride issue right now. I need you, Lord, to get involved, or I don't know what to do with this. Maybe that's your big prayer. What is it for you tonight? So as we look at Peter and John, we see a whole lot of boldness on display and not arrogance. Arrogance is, I've got this. It's self-driven. Boldness is, God's got this. Now let's keep reading. Look, look with me. We're going to start in verse 13 again. Here's the outcome of Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit. It says this. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, which insulted them even more, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, so they saw literal proof of the miracle that had happened. It says next, they had nothing to say in opposition. The world's been silenced because Jesus has moved 
verse 15 says, after they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves. Now look at, look at the, what the rulers do. They, they choose in this moment not to turn to Jesus. They turn more towards sin. Look at their response, all right? Not everybody you, you come in contact with, not everybody you share Jesus with, not everybody who sees you do a good work for God's name is going to repent right there. No, look what they do. They, they manipulate and they contrive among themselves. It says this in verse 16. What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. Verse 18, so they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So here's number two, if you're taking notes, once you write this down. The difference between corruption and conviction. The difference between corruption and conviction. All right, so number one, the difference between arrogance and boldness, right? Peter and John, they live with a bold faith, and they're choosing to act on it. And it's not in their own power. It's the Holy Spirit's power in them. Because remember, Peter denied Jesus three times, timid and afraid. Peter said, hey, I'm not even with that guy. Now he's got the Holy Spirit in him. He's doing amazing, miraculous things. He's like, oh, yeah, let me tell you about Jesus, whom you crucified. But number two, there's two parties in this text that's very important to recognize, and that's corruption and conviction. Now, here's conviction defined. Remember this. Conviction is when God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, tugs at the heart of a believer, calling them to repent or do that which is right. It's an action. So conviction comes in the form of when you struggle with sexual morality and it's raining in your life and you feel like you cannot escape it in any way, shape, or form, that burden that you have on your heart to escape it is the conviction of the Lord. But conviction can also come in the form of, you know what? I feel a conviction inside of me to always love people with a love that is patient. I'm not going to be in a rush with people. I'm going to be very patient with people. You feel like conviction to be patient. See, conviction is not always just God calling you out of something. It's God out of something bad. It's God calling you to something good. Some of the best college students who have lived on mission in the last seven years that I've been here, some of the most impactful ones that I have seen, the one thing for sure they all had in common besides our relationship with the Lord was conviction. I'm telling you, the guys that I have discipled over the last seven years, the guys that I have been lucky enough to sit down with eyeball to eyeball and walk through God's word and, and, and talk to them about their ministry, the most impactful ones had conviction. My wife would say the same thing of ladies. Are you a man or a woman of conviction? However, the rulers, the leaders at this time, they don't have conviction. There's a lot of corruption happening here because they, they even can't reject that a sign has been done. And yet, what do they want to do? They don't want to respond to it in repentance. They don't want to respond with praise. They respond with persecution. They're like, hey, let's silence these men. This work cannot go on any longer. We must stop this. That's corruption at its peak. <laughs> That's what's so amazing. Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He's got conviction in him to share the gospel, and he doesn't have to make up something to say. It just flows. Yet the world's stumbling right now. I mean, look at them. They're stumbling, John, to come up with some kind of way to silence these men. They have nothing, no plan, no agenda. They're just going to threaten them. And guess what? It's not going to work. And so from the Garden of Eden to your life in America in 2023, you have the same choice. Publicly and privately, when you choose sin, you're choosing corruption. Corruption will lead to death every time. You also have the choice to choose holiness, to choose righteousness, to choose that publicly and privately, which is best for your life that God has ordained for you. And that leads to conviction, which leads to godliness, discipline, 
holiness. And I know I'm stepping on some nerves right now. I know there is some conviction in this room happening right now. That's not from me. I don't have that kind of power. I put my socks on the same way you put your socks on. If you got conviction in your heart, that's Jesus and the Holy Spirit working. And you have a choice and I have a choice. Yes, Lord, or no, Lord. You see men live with conviction, these two men, and then you see corruption on the other side. I'll paint you a picture of our world today. This past Saturday, my mom was on her way over to watch college football. We've been following primetime. We've been following Deion Sanders and the story that he has going to Colorado. It was a bad Saturday for them. They got their head knocked off by Oregon. It was just brutal. And my mom, she was coming over. It was 2.30 games, so we didn't do lunch or anything. So my mom said, what can I bring? I asked for one thing from my mom. I said, Mom, will you just bring chocolate cake? Can I get an amen? (laughs) Amen. I'm telling you, listen, the Harris family, we can put down cake. (laughs) My goodness. Almost to a fault. And we love cake. I said, Mom, just bring a chocolate cake. We're going to hang out. We're going to watch the game. We had a few others there. It was a good time. And my sister calls me. My sister calls me about 2.20, frantic. And she calls me. This is the worst kind of call you can get, right? She calls me and she goes, hey, Mom was in a wreck, right? And the first, first thing you get that call, you just, your heart drops, right? I don't know if you've ever gotten that call about a loved one, but your heart drops. And all of a sudden you start realizing, hey, these small battles I've been facing really are not that big in light of the safety of my loved ones. You kind of drop everything else and just go immediately. And so I say, where's she at? She's like Kroger and Bartlett. So I get in my Ford Explorer, which is having some real issues right now. So I'm glad she made it there because otherwise I would have been broken down on the side of the road too. And that would have been a story. And I make it there to Kroger and I pull up. And I'm asking my mom, I'm like, what's going on? What happened? And my mom, just innocent as she can be, just living her life, just trying to buy a chocolate cake at Kroger. And some guy in a windowless van just decides to back into her car. And then he drives off. And listen, it doesn't matter what he's got going on in his life, but I'll tell you this. For you to hit somebody and then not call the authorities, not check on the person, and drive away from the scene... I was really mad for a while at this person who I don't know who it was. And then I started thinking, I was like, this person has corruption in their life. I was like, that person just has brokenness. That's why they drove away. Maybe they don't have insurance. Maybe they're afraid to talk to the law. Maybe they just didn't care. It doesn't matter what it is. What's true, though, is that you have two different parties. My mom, who's just trying to buy cake, who stayed to talk to the police. And somebody who would hit her and then drive away and not even check on the person. He hit her driver's side. And that's just corruption. And here's the point I want to make to you. The corruption you see of the leaders at this day, the corruption we see happen in our world, such as hitting somebody's car and driving off, corruption doesn't just hurt you. It hurts others who are also trying to do the right thing. May we reflect on our own brokenness. May we reflect for a moment on our own sin that our choices hurt others. Whatever that guy had going on in his life, it hurt somebody else. It wasn't just him. When you and I choose ungodliness, we hurt somebody in the process. I don't know about you, that motivates me to try to get it right. That motivates me to try to live for Jesus when I know, hey, it's not just me on the line, there's other loved ones and there's other people I don't even know on the line too. And you know what, if you're, if you're here tonight and you're like, man, I, I don't really care what affects others. I've got my own story to live. That's That's not the mindset that Jesus lived out with on this earth. Jesus saw people. He healed people. He loved people. He cared for people.
Corruption doesn't just hurt you. It, hurt, uh, it hurts others who are trying to do the right thing. And so this is my question for this point. And I'm going to give you a minute. I'm not going to rush through this. The question for this point is this. What is one thing that God is convicting me over that I need to let go of? And I want you to write it down. If you don't want to write it down, if you share a journal or something, don't write it down. But I would like for you to write it down. What is one thing that God is convicting me over that I need to let go of? Maybe it's fear. Maybe you read about Peter and John. You listen to me, some random guy, talk to you about boldness. And you're like, hey, that's not for me. I've got a career I'm working towards. I've got plans. I've got an agenda. I've got a calendar I'm working on. Stepping out of my comfort zone, stepping out is not for me. Maybe it's fear. Maybe you've got some view of church that is ungodly. Maybe somebody hurt you. Maybe somebody made you mad. And there's something you need to give God there with church. Maybe it's pride. Maybe for some of you it's arrogance. It's like, you know what? I haven't been nice to the people I love. I haven't been kind to the people I love. Whatever it is, write it down. It's between you and God. Would you do something about it tonight? And then the last thing, number three, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The difference between pleasing people or pleasing God. So Peter and John, you've got to love it. <laughs> they see a miracle happen. <laughs> they get arrested. They preach the gospel. They say, hey, under, there's no other name to be saved. They're speaking to Jewish leaders. They quote the Old Testament. I mean, they're being bold. They're loving people. They're not hurting anybody. And then comes this moment where they have to respond to the persecution. And I do hope this makes you think about how you will respond this week. Look with me. It says this in verse 19. Peter and John answered them, quote, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. And then verse 20 says, For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. They said we can't do it. The conviction's too strong. We've seen too many miracles. We've seen too many things happen. We've seen Jesus be too good to be silenced for man. Is that true for you? Have you personally seen Jesus be so good to you that you can't be quiet for him on account of man or woman that you can't? Has he been that good to you? I'm not talking about a person. I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about the Savior. I'm talking about Jesus. Has he been so good to you that that burning desire in you to keep talking about him and keep living for him is so strong that no matter how much persecution you or I face, we keep on going. I do wonder how I would respond if I was put in this moment. You place yourself in their shoes. An intimidation factor, a moment where you're standing before authorities, you're standing before people who are telling you to be quiet. Would you say the same thing? Could you look at them and say, and remember, nothing's going for Peter and John except Jesus. They're untrained, they're uneducated. There's a whole lot of other religions that are bigger than Christianity at this point. People are getting saved, God's moving, but on paper, from an earthly standpoint, it's tough out here. And they look and they say, we can't be quiet. Not on account of Jesus. <laughs> because Jesus loves you so much, he came down to this earth 
knowing all your sins. If your best friend knew all your sins, if they knew every thought that you had, if they knew everything you did, would they still want to be your best friend? That's a hard question. And yet Jesus chose to come down to this earth when he knew every single thing about you. Your skills, your talents, your gifts, your praises. He knew your sins. He knew your shortcomings, your flaws. And he still came down to this earth. And as they stand before the authorities, Jesus was stand was standing before authorities, being questioned, being called a criminal, being called a demon. And yet every single thing Jesus did in his life was heal people, made the, the people who couldn't walk, walk again, made the lepers healed so they could come back into society, fed 5,000 people. And they put them on trial. And when they drove the nails into Jesus' hand on the cross 2,000 years ago, and when they drove the nails through his feet, the crucifixion is documented in so many places throughout history. Nothing more impactful than the crucifixion and supposed resurrection of Jesus that cannot be disproven. They can't even argue with the resurrection. <laughs> they can't even argue with it. They can't even come close to saying, Man, well, we know he didn't resurrect, so we shouldn't have to worry about it. They can't say anything about it. Wow, 5,000 people just got saved. Something supernatural is happening. Something supernatural is happening. And he's standing there. And he says, I can't be quiet for you guys. I got to live for Jesus. Why? Because Peter remembers watching Jesus stand on trial, take Barabbas' place, and be nailed to a cross. And as he shed his blood, as he gave up his life that day, 2,000 years ago, the perfect sacrificial lamb who knew no sin, bore your sin, bore my sin, so that you and I who were not righteous could know righteousness, so that you and I could be made new, so that we could be new creations. I'll be candid with you guys. If your heart doesn't know that, all this is religion, and it's going to get boring, and it's going to wear you out. If you have a whole lot of religion and you don't have Jesus, or the word or prayer, you will get so sick of church people and of doing church and of religion programs. You will get so sick of it. But if you have Jesus truly in your heart, you'll love God's people. You'll love lost people. You'll love Muslims. You'll love atheists. You'll love anybody because Jesus loves everybody. And his blood was shed for them too. So I want to ask you, first off, does that gospel ring true in your heart? Like, is Jesus real in your heart? Is there a burning desire inside of you? If not, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying, no, ask the question, why? Because how, how could you and I, I'm serious, how could you and I encounter something like that with Jesus? Read in Scripture every day about the miracles that were performed and the boldness of some of the early believers and not choose to do the same things. So if you're a believer would you ask yourself that question? If you're not a believer, why would you not give your life to Jesus Christ? Is it skepticism? Hear me for a moment. I understand. I do. When I was 21, I hated the church and I hated Christianity. And I believed the Bible could be disproven like that. I was like, you start digging into that. There's no way that ancient book is true. I believe that in my soul. And for a full year, full year, I came to Bellevue, not to The View, not to college ministry. For a full year, I came to Bellevue. I sat in the big sanctuary alone, and I started dissecting sermons. I started dissecting passages. I started dissecting the Bible. I started reading online about this and reading online about this and reading online about this and taking all these different sources. And as I sat in church every single week, <laughs> as God does, that word 
that word, it wasn't about Brother Steve. It was that word started piercing my heart. I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to do it without God. And I realized I can't be a leader if I don't have God. <laughs> Is it some sort of doubt that he'll meet you where you are? There's people every week that walk into church and walk into college ministries and young adult ministries and say, man, my sin is so great. I have so much wrong in my life that has piled up to the ceiling. There's no way there is a God who could love and forgive me and restore me. Is it the weight of your sin? Because scripture says where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Wherever there is repentance, there is always restoration. Can I get an amen? Always restoration. What is it for you 